Welcome to the Pod 20, and my guest this week is Gary Hayes. Find out all about him and his podcast company, Highway 61, in a bit. What really happened to Madeleine McCann? Ben Ando and Victoria Mitzi from the True Crime podcast, You Didn't Let Me Finish, will wade into the debate. The entrepreneur Simon Squibb will be on to tell us why he went off social media for a bit. And the voice of Tony the Tiger, Tom Clark Hill, will talk about what it was like getting voice acting work when he first moved from Los Angeles to the UK. And it's that spooky time of year again. The only thing scarier than seeing a pair of ghosties is being confronted by a pair of ghoulies. The Pod 20 is heard on podcast radio on DAB in London, the home counties, Manchester and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. Let's get into the chart now and at number 20, and that's why we drink. Chilling ghost stories and terrifying true crime stories. The world's a scary place and that's why we drink. At 19, The Fault Line, Bush, Blair and Iraq. On September the 11th, 2001, as he faced incalculable losses after the terrorist attacks that day, George W. Bush made a call to his greatest international ally, British Prime Minister Tony Blair. Eighteen months later, Bush and Blair led a coalition into a war that went horribly wrong. David Dimbleby takes us back to those crucial 18 months, talking to prime ministers, politicians, spies and weapons inspectors. He asks how and why we came to invade Iraq. Let's check in with this week's special guest. It's Gary Hayes from Highway 61 Podcasts. Tell me about Highway 61, Gary. We are a narrative podcast producer, although we don't strictly do just narrative podcasts. So that's a contradiction in itself. So we're just trying to bring about that American model of podcasting into the UK. Um, you know, to, we're, For anyone uh, that doesn't understand, just explain the difference between a narrative podcaster and, a, and any other kind, like an interview kind or whatever. Yeah, so you, you'll, you'll speak to most people and they'll say, that, oh, they love cereal and they love this American life or they're fans of what, you know, the content that Gimlet put out on Wondery and, you know, others like that and Luminary as, as another. Um, but in the UK, that, that style of telling stories through the podcast hasn't really taken off like it has in the states where they're getting you know for, for instance in the case of serial they're getting this true crime murder thriller and telling it over the course of 15 episodes and just really being forensic on the storytelling in terms of where they're going with it but a lot of it is just using a narrative to push the podcast along whereas a lot of podcasts here in the uk which is fine because we, we do a couple of them ourselves, which are just sort of talk shows. Um, so, you know, the biggest one that I can think of is something like um, totally the Totally Football Show or Football Weekly, where you've got three or four people in a room talking football or talking another sport or talking around another issue. So those round tables work, but we just look at it and think that the market is saturated with that content. And what value can we offer to the market and what value can we offer to clients and potential clients to sort of push the podcast conversation along in, in the UK? And we're trying to do what they're doing in America and for, well, for a global audience, but with a UK audience, you know, at the heart of it, really. So that that's our reason for being that. That's why we created the company. And it's just trying to drive what is a passion project into a business really now you mentioned serial is that the one that really turned you on to narrative podcasting yeah it really is it's, uh, i was listening to this american life before then but it was on a holiday in mexico listening to serial where i just couldn't get enough of it and i was just laying and i binged it because i was late to it and i just and I, I knew i was going away and i was like actually this this podcast that everyone's talking about i'm gonna just sort of let it build up and i'll listen to it at once while I'm while I'm on holiday and I just got hooked and from there I was you know I was on hol and I was making these notes of how I could you know ideas I had maybe for books or ideas I had for other little projects within my line of work at the time because I was a football writer I was like this would work better as a podcast this would work in the serial way and now years five six years later it took me to highway 61. 
and you're producing some great podcasts. Gary Hayes, uh, later we'll find out from Gary what it was like being a regular at Chelsea, even though he lived almost 100 miles away from Stamford Bridge. Number 18 is Case File, True Crime. Fact is scarier than fiction. At 17 on the Pod 20 this week, David Tennant does a podcast with David's latest episode features unheard bits and outtakes from season two's conversations with his guests Jim Parsons, Judy Dench, Dan Levy, Tim Minchin, Brian Cox, Elizabeth Moss and Billy Piper. At 16, The Good Luck Club from the entrepreneur Simon Squibb. Simon, you went off social media for a while. What was that all about? Oh uh, yeah, well, I'm I'm actually um, I, I I worry about social media. I mean, there's quite a lot of good movies out recently, like the Social Dilemma. There's a good movie about that. It, but but basically, a bit like I was saying about work earlier, you get addicted. You think you're doing something because you have to, and actually, you're doing it because you're addicted. I I have an addictive personality, so that's why, for example, I've never drunk alcohol because I know if I drank alcohol, I'd probably overdrink. Um, you know, I have one vice, which is chocolate, and I definitely eat too much of it. And and social media is one of those things that I um you know I would always say uh, when I was running my last company, you know, I have to do social media. You know, you have to communicate with your customers and you have to promote. But I find myself, you know, at dinner with my family on social media, and and therefore, you know, to me that if I make that post at nine o'clock at night, it, is it really that important? Or should I be outsourcing it or helping paying someone else whose time zone might be one o'clock in the afternoon, not nine p.m. at dinner, um, to do it for me instead? And so I felt like I'd become addicted to social media and was it was saying that I had to do it for the business when in reality I was doing it because I was addicted, and I hate the idea of anything being addicted, addictive in my life. So so then you know I, I basically stop using it and see what happens. Um, and I've just made the pledge again to do it at weekends for myself and my team. We also we can schedule posts, but we we don't go on social media ourselves if we can help it. So you're on a social got, media diet right now. How long? Oh, how long were? You, oh, I see. And how long were you off it then? Uh, a year and a half. Wow, that's yeah. a long time. In fact, there'll yeah. be new ones popping up while you were off it, probably. Like TikTok's yeah. still pretty new, isn't it? It probably happened yeah. while you were off it. Well, yeah, and I, and I went back on TikTok. Uh, well, I went on TikTok about three months ago. I now have sixty-two thousand followers. So, you know, don't worry, folks. You can pick up where you left off. <laughs> so, what did you what did you learn from from being disconnected from social media then, for that the, length of time? Uh, I, I guess I learned first of all that um, you, you don't need to share everything, and I learned to engage with people, not stare at my phone. And I, I got fit actually. Um, you know, you, I think when you're not staring down at your phone in, in an unhuman way with your neck crooked down and suddenly you've lost two hours of time because you were looking at social media, you could have gone and done a run. You could have gone to the gym. You could have, you know, um, worked out or just gone for a walk. And so, um, so yeah, so I really enjoyed that time. Having said that, I am now back on social media in quite a heavy way because I have this cause. I want people to know that there's a service out there that can help them for free, especially now. So I think social media has its place. Um, I always like the working concept of you work hard for seven years and you have two years off. I, I always like this model. You know, a lot of people say, you know, get to retirement and then stop working. But I actually really like this idea where you, you know, you really get heads down on something, you create something, you build something, and then you take time off. So uh, partly now I'm on my uh, back on my seven-year cycle. I feel like so, you know, I will work very hard. I will build something meaningful, hopefully useful to people, uh, and and then I will take time off again. So I think you know there's there's but again I also think you have to as you, as you probably heard a million times from a million people but you know life's a, a marathon not a sprint right which is often said by people that have never run a marathon I think but but um, <laughs> but but you know it, it it is it is and I think that you sometimes have to pace it out so that's why I say I'm seven years now making this platform work but I will still try to take the weekends off where I can as far as social media is concerned and and try to you know lift my head up stay healthy you know and, and be present for my family well good luck with all of that and the good luck club podcast from the entrepreneur Simon Squibb is at number 16 this week Simon will be back next week to talk about the importance of taking risks when you're young 
At 15, the Ezra Klein Show, the winner of the 2020 Webby and People's Voice Awards for Best Interview Podcast. At 14, On Purpose with Jay Shetty, fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world. My special guest this week is Gary Hayes from the podcast company Highway 61. Let's go back to the beginning, Gary. Where are you from? I'm from a, a small town in the Fens called Peterborough. Uh, the Fens is this uh, unglamorous uh, location that is just flat. It's like the, the British version of uh, the Holland and Belgium. It's just flat land. It's grey. It's misty. It's horrible. Uh, and that, that's that's where I'm from. And um, I just grew up there as a Chelsea fan. My, my family are from, well, my dad's from Campbell. My mum's from Bow. And they moved out of London when they started having kids. And um, we, but because of that London connection, we, we were all Chelsea fans growing up. So I'm from a family of eight. I'm number five. I had four older brothers, uh, two younger brothers and one younger sister. And uh, we, we used to go down to Chelsea a lot. Um, and I remember at the time we could never buy... You know, I was eight years old, my first game, eight years old. And um, I remember going down there and just being completely, you know, you know how people talk like the smell of the grass when you first go into a football stadium. Yeah. And it was that mud and grass that... And it's so got, green under the white lights if you go to, yeah. a, to an evening game as well, yeah. Yeah, and it was just this, it was this weird moment that just sort of got me hooked onto Chelsea. And, and obviously I had four older brothers and um, we used to go down a lot uh, you know to watch and p my friends never realised you know, they didn't believe I was going because they'd be going to watch Peter Ray United where we're going down to watch Chelsea and they're like you're not going there because it was such a big thing to us it was like you know this is like 1991 and to go you know obviously way before the internet way before social media and to go to a team in London to watch a team in London play was just sort of like that was the thing you saw on TV you didn't actually go and do it um, so it felt like another world away, even though it's 100 miles. Um, so I just got into that. And then I just grew up as a mad Chelsea fan, pitting myself against my four older brothers, that you know sibling rivalry. And my biggest brother, Seb, was the, the beefcake of the family. He's the eldest and no one can mess with him physically even now. So it was sort of like, well, how can I get one over him? Well, I'm going to make sure that I not only know more about Chelsea than him, but I can apply that knowledge in a way that he can't. And that was my weird way of wanting to be a football writer because I just wanted to work about, uh, sorry, write about Chelsea and work within and around Chelsea. And that's what I did. So how do you go from that? How do you go from being a kid in Peterborough, not even in London, to being a football writer? Well, I went to university and um, I did a degree in literature, which I, I was going to do a degree in journalism, but I was mad on, well, I still am mad on literature and just love reading and, yeah, and I loved the whole idea of you know forming debate through you know essays and whatnot. And I, I was a bit of a um, I wouldn't say a problem child for kids at school, but the thing is the, the education system we come from was very um, vocationally driven, where they would be like, "Stop dreaming, just go and be a builder like your dad," you know. And it was very much. And was I'm your dad being, a builder? Yeah. Yeah, my dad was a carpenter. Yeah. Right. My dad was a carpenter. My mum was just a cleaner. Right. My dad would work all day and um, he would come home. My mum would have done dinner for everyone and then he'd have, we'd all have dinner together and then my mum would go out and clean offices for four hours and we should take me and my brothers with her to help her do it. She could do more jobs just to make ends meet. Yeah. And what happened is at school, you know, coming from a state education, I'm sure this is a, it's an experience that a lot of people can relate to. Um, but then a lot of people might say, well, my state school is better than that. And well good I'm, mine I'm was terrible I went to a, a comprehensive school it was an awful yeah. school yeah My, mine was horrendous where we were taught to know our place as working yeah. class kids and yeah. I'm no by any stretch am I any you know I'm not a rebel or someone who's there trying to preach the gospel of working class pride and power or anything like that but I was always confused by that because I was like well you're getting us to read these books but you're telling me to pick up a hammer I was like I don't get this so I, <laughs> I, I would be in English lessons and I would want to debate every issue within a Shakespeare play or you know um, or within a text that we were studying you know like if we were reading you know we did very um, you know classic text you know like Great Expectations and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and something that I guess a lot of people might get shivers going back to their school memories thinking about it but I really enjoyed it but I'd really want to debate those issues with teachers and um, they would just be like look 
that's not in the grade scheme. That's not in the marking scheme. You, you can't talk about that. This I'm paid to basically tell you to go from A to B to C, and that's what you need to do. Otherwise, you'll be downgraded on your papers. So, that, and I think I just annoyed them where they were just like, why, you know, you're just this smart ass who wants to debate it for the sake of de- debating it. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I did do that a lot of the time because I'd be like, oh, no, I'm pushing buttons here, so I'll do it. You know, to, <laughs> yeah. and some, some of the times my mates would give me a jibe, like, go on, do it, do it. But, um, yeah, it was just, I don't know, I just, I just didn't see it in that way where I just wanted to be, I, I, I just, I don't know, I just, you, you get into books and, you know, the, the cliche of books being this fountain of knowledge and everything and and that's what was that was that was my escapism to me and you know um my girlfriend is from um from new jersey in america and, and just the other day we were talking about this this high school spirit that they have in and pride in the school and pride in the town and and i know obviously that's very hollywood and it's driven by that sense but that's what i really bought into this so i really you know these books are my escapism and then that led to my other passion being Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan, which sort of then helped me fuel this passion for Chelsea, where I could sort of build up this this knowledge or you know this ability to write, I guess. And I'm not trying to say that I'm. How, uh, how, so how, just explain to me was it was it Dylan's writing and Springsteen's writing? I mean, I mean Springsteen, I get it because it's very working class because it's, it's yeah. New Jersey. W- was that you were taking that as a what was it? Was was he showing you that it that people can come from suburbs and and make something of themselves was that it or was it was it deeper than that i think at the time i got on springsteen when i was 12 and that comes from um my dad uh big because we, they would go up to they'd go up to parents evening they'd be like you know um the teacher look he's, he's intelligent but he's sort of wasting it you know because he sort of he's disruptive or and it weren't disruptive in the way of just wanting to burn the school down or something but it was disruptive in the case of they're like i've got my lesson plan and you're not helping me finish my lesson plan which i can understand when you've got a gobby little 12 year old who is gobby at home because he's got a fight for his place and he comes into school and he's sort of got the same attitude um that you're sort of like there's always one and it's you right and so as you get older you understand it but at the same time i was trying to like you know learn more and i was trying to without really knowing it trying to challenge the teachers to give us more you yeah. know because when I got to university, I found that I was behind students because they'd had a better education than me. It might have been as well that they applied themselves better than me as well. You know, not not trying to play the victim here, but um, but yeah, I just found that we were just given the bog standard. And um, and what happened is, my dad just you know, it, my dad was like, look, I like him challenging the thought, and you know, he's he's trying to be different, and they're like, yeah, but that's not going to help him, you know. Um, so I, I remember you said, look, you talk a bit different to your brothers and you think a bit different. Um, he's like, you want to listen to this? And he gave me an album, which was Born to Run. Right. And, and the, the first the first song on that is Thunder Road. Yeah. And I remember listening to it on vinyl and not quite understanding it fully. You know, you don't understand the sentiment of Roy Orbison singing, you know, for the lonely and everything. You don't understand what it's about. And as you get older, you suddenly get the life experience and the knowledge to apply those lyrics, you know. But then it was just the last line that really struck me where it said, um, it's a town full of losers and I'm pulling out of here to win. And I was just, it was so powerful to me where I was like, wow, I didn't, I, I didn't know he was from New Jersey. I didn't even know what New Jersey was. <laughs> um, and, and obviously as I started learning more about him, um, you know, from reading books and, you know, going to the local library where, you know, because we didn't have the internet to suddenly start finding out who Bruce Springsteen was and asking my dad and he was telling me and, and just sort of get into grips with this music and what it meant lyrically. And then that lent into Bob Dylan. And I remember, you know, Bob Dylan lyrically was just, I, you know, some of his songs now I don't even understand, you know. And I, I'm sure that a lot of people say they understand them and they don't, right? Um, but I just, the, the early Dylan stuff from, you know, 62 to 67, when I was just listening to that over and over and I heard Mr. Tambourine Man, it just blew my mind. And I remember sitting up, with the CD playing, pausing it, writing down the lyric, play, pause, play, just writing it because I wanted to write out the lyrics to that song. And I took him to school the next day. I was like, oh, guys, I wrote a song. Yeah, I was like, right. <laughs> and I gave it to my friends and they were like, what is this? The Jingle Jangle Morning, what are you talking about? This is rubbish. And it was only years later that one of my friends, because I don't, I don't really speak to a lot of my friends from school back then, but one of them watched Dangerous Minds and was like, hey, that song, you didn't write that song. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was in. I was like, yeah, took, took you that long to work it out. But um, 
So I, I was just fascinated with this world that they created and and I was just fascinated with American culture because it was this world away. Again, you know, that idea of going to Stamford Bridge as a kid and then suddenly you start absorbing, you know, and I know it's teen TV, but when you're a teenager, it means so much. And it's, it's sort of like your gateway culture into something bigger and better and more informed and more wise, I guess. And, you know, so watching shows like Dawson's Creek just blew my mind because I was just like, wow, you know, these Letterman jackets, this pride in the school and, you know, we don't have that here. You know, we, we sometimes would have a football team if the teachers could be bothered to put the football team together. Yeah. You know, we, we weren't brought up to have pride in where we we're from. It's like we're a machine that's here to take you in and spit you out and just make sure that we tick some boxes along the way. Yeah. And to seeing them, and I know, look, America's got its issues. America's got massive, massive issues. But when you're young and you see it and you get that idealism, and yeah, it is an ideal, you know, it's a idyllic image you're getting given by people that have, you know, it's very manufactured. But when you apply <laughs> these teen shows and teen movies to Springsteen and Dylan lyrics, they sort of come together in this perfect storm. And it sort of just inspires you in a way that then obviously led to me to go in university. And, and I know you, you're connecting football with, um, you know, this passion for, for music and it doesn't quite necessarily knit together in the way you might think, but it's very unconventional, but, but if you're going to write think. about it, writing is writing. And yeah, yeah, you know, cool. if you just got, if you were only influenced by football writers, your writing would look like theirs. But if you're taking, you know, things that you're finding from all different varied sources, what's going to come out is going to be so much more original. It's going to be you because it is part of you that's yeah. coming out. So I think, you know, whatever field you creative field you're in, you've got, it's like, you know, I for years and years worked in radio and it used to annoy me that, that radio presenters had only ever heard of like British DJs and I used to listen to well I started on in the, on the radio in Australia and I listened to a guy called Doug Mulray but I'd listen to other people like John Laws and then I'd get tapes of the Grease Man and Howard Stern and the real Don Steele and, the, and I'd be and I'd be taking influences from everywhere and it used to annoy me that all oh, the British DJs they'd only listen to like you know um, Simon Mayo or something. Well, nothing wrong with Simon Mayo, but you've oh, got. To you've, but you've got to have lots of different influences so that the yeah. original you comes out. And it doesn't matter if they're even. You know, in radio, you might be on a top forty station, but you can be influenced by classical station presentation if somebody does something really good. And Radio Four and Five Live and everything. So I get, I get the connection. Although it doesn't sound like one, it's all about influence and and what yeah, then exactly. when you create, it's got a every it's got a piece of you in it. it it's sort of why um, it's why I was never a good journalist, really. Which is which is. But the, you were curious and inquisitive, which you proved in school by asking more questions about Charles Dickens' work and that, which yeah, is a, yeah. a basic of journalism is to ask questions and to want to get get to a bit further than just the uh, the story you're being told. See what what I, what I found with working in. See, this is what I needed to distinguish, which I, again, it was just being naive and, and I guess maybe being a little bit behind because you don't have that knowledge, which you have to pick up. But I, I was like, yeah, I'm a football journalist, I'm a football journalist. And it took me a while to realise, I was like, I'm not a football journalist, I'm a football writer. And and to some someone, that might sound a bit pretentious. And it's like, no, What's it's the not difference good. then for you? So, well, a, fo a football journalist is someone who is, who's got the, you know, they've got their pulse on the news and they're the people that are breaking important stories. I've never written a line of news in my life. You know, right. I've, I've, I, I write features yeah. and, and that, to me, that's a football writer where, or just, just a writer. Right. And, and what I did is I, I went and worked for, you know, I did like shifts at the Sunday times and the Sunday people and, you know, the sun and, you know, anywhere that would have me. I worked for um, an agency called haters. It's a really well-respected, um, sports agency and I did that for about six months to a year after I graduated and then it it just sort of it dawned on me I was like look I don't like this I don't like what I have to do to do this because I didn't find it again it sounds really potential but I didn't it didn't really oil the creative cogs you know and um, it was only when I started writing for Chelsea magazine that I was able to write features well I want to find out what it was like working at your favourite football club in a little bit. Gary Hayes from the podcast company Highway 61. 
I'm Graham Mack, and this is the Pod 20, the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts, and we've reached number 13 this week, which is Dear Joan and Jerrica, from Julia Davis and Vicky Pepperdine. At 12, Newscast from BBC Radio. This week, the Alex Salmond Inquiry. At 11, Spanner and Spoon, the cartoon podcast featuring the many voices of Tom Clark Hill. Tom, you moved to the UK from California. What was it like getting voice acting work then? When I moved here in 93, you know, it used to be like, if you're a serious voiceover, you gotta, you gotta say that you live in London. Yeah. And, and I said, well, I'm not gonna live in London. I live in Droitwich. And so I bucked that and then I started getting work in um, Gloucester. Yeah. Liverpool. Yeah. Manchester and Leeds. Yeah. And I would see people there that had commuted all the way up from London and I went, oh, it didn't take me that long, man. I live in Droitwich, <laughs> man. And then, and then when um, ISDN came in. Yeah. In 95 or 94. I got ISDN right away. Yeah. And um, there would be guys in London say, well, I don't need ISDN because I just go into my friend's studio and blah, 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 like that. But because I needed to get it because I was out in the sticks, it raised my profile quick. Yeah. Yeah. And it paid for, I was, was, I've just now given up my ISDN line because hardly anybody's using it anymore. That's right. Yeah. And I've got a, I've got a ISDN unit called a Musicam Roadrunner. Yeah. that I bought for 1200 quid in 1994 and it paid for itself in 2 weeks. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. And and I remember driving to Manchester to to, to do a job and then halfway back they said you got to come back. Uh we missed three lines. And I said and in the meantime I I had a call from somebody that says we need you in London in an hour. And I said I can't make it but I could do ISDN. They go, "Okay." So yeah. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna get there to my house to do the ISDN to London. So I tell the Manchester guys, I got to go to my house to do uh, London, but I could do your stuff down the line. So like that was within the, within the first week or two, you know. And those both paid really well. And that but is the bit. standard now, isn't it, for voiceover? Pretty much, is you do it down the line anyway. You don't yeah. go into studios in London so, that much. Yeah. yeah. So anybody that that um, you know, needed a kick in the butt to get their home studio going, this has sure been it. And also the thing, it's leveled the playing field a little bit too. You know, the ad agencies for a while still wanted to say, okay, we're all going to meet at Soho Square Studios, all six of us, and drink our latte, and, and, uh, you know, we're going to have the guy in the booth, and then we'll turn it off so he can't hear what we're saying about him, you know, and then then, uh, turn it into a nice little social event or something like that, and now everybody's working from home, man. Yeah, the only way to go. So when you've done work like Fantastic Beasts, uh, the feature film stuff, you do have to show up for that, though, don't you? Definitely. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about that, then. How did you get into that? I I was uh, with a... Waring and McKenna was my acting agent then. And they, you know, I just did a, an audition for uh, that show, and it was like they had three different roles that I went up for, and I ended up with a pivotal role in Fantastic Beasts. Yeah. My name's reporter number two <laughs> you know and i had i had so much more than reporter number one you know right you yeah but yeah so but that was cool man it was at, it was at the studios uh, what what are the harry potter studios called it's not elstree is it no it's uh um, it's probably pinewood is it no it's it's north of london oh it's uh, well, probably elstree which is in hertfordshire the county i'm in right now yeah okay yeah. So Elstree's where they do Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and they did Big Brother there too. Yeah. Yeah. Well I'm not sure, but anyway it was an outside set. Yeah. You know, like uh like a couple of blocks with big giant green screens behind it. And so I'm in the first five minutes, you know, if you gotta concentrate harder, you miss me, man. Yeah. But it's still you yeah. can say you were in it, you did it. Yeah, you, yeah. you got it. And yeah. uh you you were in denial as well. You played Sam Dixon in that one. Yeah. That was that was about the same time too. Those were both like within two months of each other. Yeah. And that was cool. We got to ride around with Timothy Spall for a couple of days, in a, in the car making those like, it's on the way to where he humiliates uh, Rachel Weiss's character. Yeah. And I stand up and ask her some pointed questions, and then then he jumps up and rebuts. <laughs> I, I get her I get her to to call him out on some stuff, and then he stands up and and 
shoots her down. That's in the first five minutes too. So you know, I try to keep all my greatest moments in the first five minutes. So that's right. You, yeah. You, you gotta... If you don't like the rest of the film, you could just stop there. <laughs> so even if somebody walks out of the film, they still saw you. Yeah. 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 And what was it like working in in movies? It's an environment I've never had anything even close to do with. Is it is it like proper showbiz? Yes. Um, the motto that I, I uh, really kind of related to was hurry up and wait. All right. Yeah. There's a lot I of standing I, around. I did this movie called um, uh, Entrapment when I yeah. first got here. Yeah. And it was Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah. And um, and I was I was a cop, and I was working with Mark Anthony, who was a he's like a, a he's a, he's a really good salsa singer as well. Yeah. He's from the states. He was married to J Lo for a while. Right. And um, and uh, um, the first day we were supposed so I you know that was at Pinewood Studios, and so the first day we're supposed to be shooting it. You know, I get there at like six in the morning, go into makeup and stuff like that, and they go. Oh, Sean's taking a long time on the scene, so it's going to be later this afternoon. And then later in the afternoon, they go, oh, it ain't going to be till tomorrow. So we just sat around all day. And it turned out, I don't know if you ever saw Entrapment. It's the scene where Catherine Zeta-Jones, like, she's going underneath all these under laser, Under the laser beams. and she's Yeah, yeah. 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 So he's, yeah, let's take a little bit longer on this scene here. You know, and then, and then there's like one where, you know, she clubs him in the head with a briefcase or something like that. It was all of that stuff. But, you know. It's all fun. The the funnest movie I ever did was called um, uh, Winst- or Churchill the Hollywood Years. Right. I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, it, it, it didn't do too well in the cinemas, <laughs> but it was hilarious, man. It's got so many uh, Rick Mayle and, and um, God, I can't think of Vic. Vic, uh, Vic Reeves? Vic Reeves. Yeah. Yeah, Vic Reeves. And um, one of the scenes I did, I was opposite John Coleshaw. Yeah, John. John was uh, President Blair, <laughs> and and the whole pretense of it is that is that the real Winston Churchill wasn't the the fat guy with the cigar that you guys all see. He that was really a guy named Roy Bubbles who was an after dinner speaker, <laughs> and that for you guys to actually win the Second World War, you needed an American action hero, which was Christian Slater, <laughs> and then he has a he has a little tryst with uh, the Queen, who played by Nev Campbell. And their illegitimate son is me, and right. I come back to solve. I come back to solve the mystery of why you know my dad didn't get any street cred. You know, <laughs> but if you get a chance, well, check it out, man. It's, it's hilarious, man. <laughs> and what podcasts do you listen to? Yeah, um, I like Tim Ferriss. Yeah, and I, I've listened to the Tim Ferriss ones with uh, Jamie Fox, especially, and. Um, and then just random, but I'm not I'm not real avid uh, podcast guy. Um, lately, I, I think because I haven't been driving around, man. I I used to listen to because I used to commute into London. It was about thirty minutes every day, and I used to listen to him on the train. And because I haven't been commuting in, I just haven't. I have to yep. go out of my way to listen to them for podcast radio when we've got yep. a guest on or something. I have to go out of my... They're not in my routine. Sometimes I'll walk into town and I'll and I'll put one on, but not often, yeah. I, I think yep. that podcasting... That's why I decided when to do this one, I, I put the interviews as a video and put it on YouTube because I think people have got more time to actually watch video during lockdown. So I right. put the whole interview, the, the video on YouTube and then take the audio off and put it on the podcast because I just think yeah. it, it'll get to more people that way. Relying on just the audio at the minute, I don't think it's it's going to go down as well and there won't be yeah. as many people get it. Yeah. yeah, and also we've all been brainwashed by Amazon Prime and Netflix now. It's like... <laughs> This is going to be great during lockdown, you know. Yeah. Binge watch this next, and binge yeah. watch this, you know. And, and it's got me into a, a, a real binge watchy sort of a thing too. Like one of my sons is over. We're we're going through the wire again. Okay, that's a good you show, know? though. Good show. Yeah. When you walk through the garden, <laughs> you better watch your back. Banner and Spoon, featuring the many voices of Tom Clark Hill, is at number 11 this week. At 10, it's Law, Dark Historical Tales. Sometimes the truth is more frightening than fiction. At 9, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. 
My special guest is Gary Hayes from Highway 61 Podcasts. Gary, when you started out as a football writer and you got your dream job working for your football team, Chelsea, how did that happen? Yeah, so I was writing as a freelancer and then I came in and worked full-time in a magazine in the programme. Right, so, I see. Right, yeah, so you'd write the, program notes and all sorts of stuff, yeah? Uh, I wasn't doing the program notes. That was someone else based down at the training ground. But I was um, I was doing, you know, every now and then you're doing for Peter Kenyon or someone, you'd go up because there was an announcement and you'd go up and you'd get his notes and you'd write them up for him and get him to sign them off or you'd do it every now and then for the, um, you know, for the chairman or so there, there was a guy at the training ground who would do the manager and the captain um, who I'm still really good friends with now um and yeah so I, I was just doing interviews with you know players past players and just yeah just doing the magazine program really and then doing at a time we did match reports which obviously are dead now in programs because i don't need them but um so yeah we're just doing the program and the magazine and just but it was really good because it was a really good team of people where um yeah you, know, you don't have to be a fan to write about a team of course you don't but having it as all chelsea fans in that office as well um, it, you just come with this weird innate knowledge of the club where yeah. you talk about the most obscure stuff and now I've started <laughs> yeah I've started writing for the, the program again this year because the guys I worked with back then are still working there so they were like oh look we've got an idea for a feature would you just want to write about it because I haven't written about Chelsea for a while and I said actually you know what I'll do this just not that I don't want to go back to doing this but I'll do it as a one little thing in the program you know every every match and it's just sort of fun to do so sort of rekindled the the joy in doing it again um must have been, Chelsea- sorry must have been mind-blowing though as as a guy in his in his mid-20s who grew up where chelsea was almost everything to you to actually go to work at stamford bridge yeah oh, it was amazing and then I, I used to go and have my lunch in the dugout <laughs> i used to because we had these triple a passes um <laughs> so you could get anywhere so i would just yeah i'd go and have my lunch and you know i was i was paying off student debt and i was earning a pittance so i'd have to bring my pat lunch in every day and i'll just the the payoff was well rather than going down to buy my lunch or whatever i would um you know bring my pat lunch box and sit in the manager's in the manager's seat <laughs> and uh yeah you know, maybe they might they might find this out and ban me forever now but <laughs> I used to just sit there and just pinch myself. And I know it's really unprofessional to talk like that, but it was something that I did just for me. And then I'd come home and my mum my and dad had moved to New Zealand by this point. And I'd be like, I'd phone my dad and I was like, dad, I sat in the manager's chair. And he would just laugh, but they knew what it meant to me. You know, yeah. it was just like, it just, and I know it sounds, it just to say it out loud, it, it sounds really immature, but it's something that was so personal to me. And it was just something that, you know, I was, I was always professional and I was never, there like meeting players and going oh can i get a selfie or can i get your autograph and that but it just meant so much to us you know just like as and you know being able to talk to my dad about it and you know it was just yeah it was an amazing experience it was just like you know and i met so many good people there and it never changed but you know some people thought oh you might go there and see the inside of the club and it might change your opinion of it yeah it didn't at all it's sort of because the people that work there are such a credit to chelsea that it sort of just reinforced it in a way and um Obviously, you see the inner workings of football and it sort of tires you out a bit, but it doesn't, you know, numb your your love of a football club. Never meet your heroes, but in this case, it worked out great. It's Gary Hayes from Highway 61 Podcasts. Next week, we'll find out about one of Highway 61's most successful shows, the Neil Reynolds Podcast, which is all about American football. At number eight this week, Happy Place with Fern Cotton. Advice from experts on how to find joy. At seven, it's Chris Evans. How to wow. Chris's latest guest is Philip Schofield. At six, you didn't let me finish. The true crime podcast from the BBC's former news, crime correspondent and author Ben Ando, and journalist Victoria Mitzi. Now, one of the biggest crime mysteries of late has been the ongoing saga of the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. What do you think happened there? What I think, certainly, is that the latest suspect, the German paedophile they've identified, is a very, very strong suspect. Yeah. I don't think uh, that um, Maddie, Maddie's parents had anything to do with it. I don't think Kate and Jerry McCann were involved. Um, I know a lot of people on the internet think that I have. I don't think that for a second. Um, do I think that they were perhaps 
you know, they would regret leaving her in the hotel room, in the, the apartment. Yes, of course they would, would regret that. But at the same time, it was a safe family environment. They were, there was monitoring, supposedly, of the rooms. Um, and I do think that there was, this is an opportune, you know, paedophile who has stepped in here. And this, this guy from Germany seems very, very, um, you know, strong as a suspect. And although as far as I'm aware, they haven't yet found any, you know, proper um, evidence other than circumstantial evidence that it could have been him. He's he's boasted to friends about being involved, and yes, they know he was there through mobile phone tracking, but beyond that, no concrete evidence that it was him. Yes, and that's what came out of all of our as as a sort of united conclusion that we know that we don't know, and we're yeah. sort of a little step closer to not knowing with yeah. the results of our investigations. Do you, do you have any? I, I really don't know. The whole thing just seems very bizarre to me. None of it yes, seems to make definitely. sense to me. And it, it always, it feels to me like there's something, there is some part of the story or some part of the puzzle missing, which is why it doesn't all fit together. And if that part of the yes. puzzle is that the German guy was was to do with it then that's it that's the that there's a missing piece to that that definitely i don't know what it is that's made it so it's taken so long and cost so much money to uh, to get to the bottom of but it was new for me and it, it might sound quite naive but um the theory that she walked out of the room that she was there were details that came about by because it's not a case that i'd really gone into in any great detail except sort of headlines and maybe one or two news lines um that she was complaining that they'd gone out before and she was upset and asking them questions about it so for you know a little girl to sort of stray out of the room and venture out into the street as mark williams thomas suggested to me makes quite a lot of sense but then that upset some of the people who there's a huge kind of group online and this is something that became apparent of um people who want to blame um, Jerry and Kate. Yeah, there's there's a lot on YouTube, and it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty nasty stuff. It it really is, yeah. So yeah. Uh, it it in some way um, made sense that that might have happened, and that was a new theory to me. So that was something that was a, a definitely explored possibility and likelihood, and that's as far as we kind of got in terms of deductions of where, as you say, there's there's missing yeah evidence. But yeah. also, um, in the context of the, the the missing part of the jigsaw that you mentioned there, I mean, that is also largely down to the incompetence of the police investigation. Because in that, right. that crucial sort of first two, three, four hours after they were called in, they, they failed to do so many basic um, scene containment things that normally would be done routinely yeah. that there will have been a lot of evidence lost for that reason. A lot of um, potential... Um, suspects, a lot of potential leads will have been missed because they um, they just seem to have been overwhelmed, inexperienced and just not prepared for a case of that magnitude. Yeah. I spoke to, do you, do you listen to Red Handed, the true crime podcast? Yes. With, well, I yes. spoke to Saruti about, uh, about two weeks ago. She lives up the road. She lives in Letchworth. So she's probably between <laughs> the two of us. Yeah. Uh, somewhere between Cambridgeshire and, and Hertfordshire. Yeah, she lives there. And uh, she, she, she also agreed that she didn't think the parents had anything to do with, uh, with that one. She also made some... She also... Um, because it's her and is it Hannah that do that one? It's two girls. Yes. And, and yes. I asked them, why are two, what are two nice girls like you doing talking about true have crime? You, have you some, heard them talking? Yeah. <laughs> they um, know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they swear more than you two. Uh, yeah, we have to step it up. Yeah, <laughs> to keep up. But um, Saruti said something interesting, and I wonder if you're finding this too with your one. Because I said, you know, why? You know, it's, it's two girls doing sort of horrific uh, crimes. She said, well, true crime females love true crime podcasts. Have you found that the feedback you're getting is from ladies more than men? Not necessarily. Really? But maybe it's sort of. Ben, I don't know. Ben, you're no, quite a sort of guy's guy, aren't you? Are you? I don't know. You tell me. Maybe that's why. Or I, maybe I'm drawing them in. Who knows? I, I think that. Um, I think that actually there are there is a particular sort of um, cohort of women who are particularly interested in true crime. You know, including Victoria. Um, and I've noticed. I mean, if you think about Malice, if you think about um, Lady Justice, there are quite a few female true crime podders out there. 
Um, I'm not entirely sure why that is, but there's also a lot of female journalists who are drawn to true crime. So in the old days, right. there are lots of um, female court reporters as well as male court reporters. In I've fact, sat I mean, with just as many men, if not well, more. I'm just thinking of the press association ones that I know. There are fa- there yeah. are more female press. Oh really? Journalists okay, maybe it's just the randoms yeah. that I've sort of congregated. <coughs> but, but I mean, you know, I mean. I don't necessarily think there is a gender bias here, but I certainly think it's fair to say that there is a cohort of of, um, women who are particularly interested in true crime. But I suppose you could say there's also a cohort of men who are interested in true crime as well, like me. It's just a bunch of Uh, nosy Parkers. Well, I I assumed true crime was a blokey thing because the subject matter was so grisly. And it's so funny. Have you seen? Have you seen some of the people throwing out looking for podcasts? I'm looking for because they get hooked, and they're looking for more podcasts, more podcasts, and then they end up on our doorstep. And then <laughs> they say we don't, we oh, we don't want another one with a man. We don't want to hear more men, or they don't want another. They don't like this type of accent. Sometimes they specify don't like British accents, <laughs> don't like you know any regional. Uh, we don't want any um, whiny Americans. Was one that I saw recently. Oh yeah, some of that PBS that. style is a little yeah. Yeah, although some oh, of them ve- reading out stuff, I find yeah. boring. We certainly yeah. don't do that. Saruti's yeah. theory was that that it, it, true crime appeals to women because women are more often the victims of the oh, crime. That's interesting. And yeah. also that women are more conscious of their own safety than men are. Like you know, a man walking home from the pub on his own is going to be a little bit wary, but a woman could actually be terrified. Although I wonder statistically if um, I, I don't, if which I don't. one of those two is more likely. Yeah, I think the men should be a lot more scared if they listen to <laughs> true crime. Yeah, but you do start sort of thinking, I'm a lot more safety conscious since I've been doing this because are you, you? Know, week after week. Oh yeah, because if week after week you're <laughs> sort of thinking the podcast, and if I go out on a walk, I'm I'll listen to us. And that's, you know, that's that's something when you when people say what podcast you listen to, I often say mine. <laughs> you can't say that. No, why not? <laughs> oh. Well, maybe you should listen to us a bit more, Ben. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe I should. We're good. The True Crime Podcast You Didn't Let Me Finish is at number six this week on the Pod 20. At number five, Freakonomics Radio, The Hidden Side of Everything, with Stephen J. Daubner, the co-author of the Freakonomics books. Number four, Americast. Emily Maitlis and John Sopel have the latest news and analysis from the US presidential election race. Number three, Dr. Death Season 2, Dr. Fata. If someone you love is diagnosed with cancer... Well, you want them to get the best treatment from the best doctors. In 2013, patients in Michigan thought that Farid Fata was the best, but he was not what he appeared to be. At number two, the Joe Rogan experience. Joe's latest guest is Glenn Greenwald, the former attorney turned award-winning journalist. Glenn has written loads of books, including No Place to Hide, Edward Snowden, the NSA, and the US surveillance state. And at number one, for the second week in a row, shagged, married, annoyed. The only way that Rosie and Chris Ramsey can have a conversation without being interrupted by a toddler or ending up staring at their phones is by doing a podcast. That's it for episode 27 of the Pod 20. Thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Gary Hayes, Simon Squibb, Tom Clark Hill, Ben Ando and Victoria Mitzi. If you'd like to watch extended video chats with my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Next week's guest is the writer, journalist and broadcaster Tom Fordyce. You'll probably know him from That Peter Crouch Podcast. He's got a couple of great new podcasts out, which he'll talk about next week. One of them is called Death of a Rockstar, and one of the rock stars you feature is Michael Hutchins from NXS. Was that one suicide or an accident? There were so many different voices, and I suppose you will get this when someone dies alone. There's the the auto-asphyxiation theory. Yeah. I think the most pivotal thing that happened in the build-up to that and probably explains why it ended as it did for, for Michael Hutchins was the time where he's in Denmark with Helena Christensen, who he was dating before he, he dated Paulie Yates, and he got into a fight with a taxi driver. And the taxi driver punched him and he fell and hit his head. 
And it sounds like he suffered, in retrospect, it sounds like he suffered some sort of traumatic brain injury at that point because his band members in, in excess talk about how his character changed and his mood swings became much more intense. Didn't he lose uh, a sense of taste or smell? One that, of the- That's it, that's yeah. it, yeah. yeah. And he was never really the same man again because he had been, he was such a natural performer, wasn't he? He was a natural mm, he was a rock front star. man. Yeah, <laughs> absolute, absolute stereotypical rock star. And things seemed to get more difficult for him after that and i think that's why he was chasing different highs and he was he was chasing different relationships um it was also the shock i think of that death because his bandmates were waiting they were doing um rehearsing just down the road uh in melbourne and they were ready to go back on tour and they were waiting for him to turn up and then a camera crew arrived and said what do you think about michael and they said what do you mean and the camera crew had heard first and for everyone involved, there was that sense of could they have done something? Yeah. Uh, he had a, he had an, an old friend, an old female friend who'd been with him for much of the evening. Um, Paul Yates was back in was back in England because she was looking after her kids with Bob Geldof. But there was a sense of guilt for everyone involved, for the bandmates, for the partners, for the friends. All all of them thinking, should we have seen this coming? Was there anything that we could have done? Hmm. But do you think that it was? deliberate or was it suicide or accident i think it was an accident reading okay. reading everything about it i think it was probably an accident yeah an accident um, waiting to happen probably but an accident yes the same. I, yeah. I think so i think if he had wanted to kill himself i think there were other ways he could have killed himself yeah um, and other opportunities and other times tom fordyce my special guest next week and what will happen on the podcast chart next week will shagged married annoyed still be in the top spot making it a third week Maybe your favourite podcast will be at number one. Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.